Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Oxford University Undergraduate Law Journal. My name is Richard, and I'm the current Vice Editor-in-Chief, and will be joined today by Professor Philippa Webb and Professor Dapo Okande. Philippa is Professor of Public International Law at King's College London, a leading commentator on international law with an active practice at 20 Essex Court, a board member of multiple leading international law journals, and also an honorary board member of um, the Oxford University Undergraduate Law Journal. Professor Kande is Professor of Public International Law at the Blumatnik School of Government, a Fellow of Exeter College, and was recently elected to the United Nations International Law Commission. He too is on multiple international law journal boards and an expert in the field. So yeah, um, thank you for joining us. And uh, to start off, the public or perhaps even law students not familiar with public international law might question the bite and relevance of international law, especially in light of the Ukraine-Russia war. Um, and might perceive it to be inherently non-binding and a more a set of rules of aspiration rather than anything practically relevant. Is this perception justified, both in general and more specifically with view to the Russia-Ukraine war, and why might the study of international law be interesting and practically relevant to, for example, students considering their modules doing their degree? Thanks very much, and thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, so if I start with, you know, the perception that international law might be non-binding and an aspirational, you know, because it's law, these are rules which are binding, binding on states and in um, certain circumstances also binding on other actors like individuals and, and others. The idea of it being non-binding might come from issues relating to enforcement. So the thought might be, well, how do we enforce rules of international law, even if they are binding as a matter of law? What are the systems um, or the frameworks that exist for enforcing it? And that's often what is in the mind of, of people. So there I would make two points. The first point that I would make is that actually there are a num number of ways in which at least certain rules of international law may be enforced, whether we're talking about states or whether we're talking about other actors. So, you know, we might, for example, be thinking about enforcement via the Security Council. We might be thinking about enforcement through what we call countermeasures, which is essentially measures of self-help, where states take measures in order to enforce violations by others. And then in relation to other actors that are bound by international law, individuals and, and others, you know, it'd be the normal mechanisms for enforcement. So that's be, that would be my first point. The second point that I would make about the enforcement question is that I actually think that it's fundamentally mistaken to think that law is law because it can be enforced. And I think that's actually not even true of domestic law. So when we think of domestic law, we tend to think most commonly of private law we tend actually to leave out public law, which is where you started from. So the law that applies to the state, even in domestic legal systems, there is no body outside of the state that enforces that law against the state. So some of our most fundamental areas of law, the constitutional law of most states, we expect the government to comply, but there's no body outside of the government that can actually force the government to comply with it. If the government doesn't comply, if it chooses not to comply, which it could choose not to do, we expect that, we hope that the government would ultimately pay some kind of political price for that non-compliance. And that's very true of international law too. Just one last thing um, about that perception. So the other thing that I would say is that 
international law, like other areas of law, performs a couple of functions. Number one, there's a sort of preventive function. We have rules, and then we hope that those rules will prevent certain behavior. So when you think about what's happening in Russia, Ukraine, you say, well, there are rules relating to the use of force. Russia has not respected them in that sense. We may say, well, international law has failed. But actually, that's just one function. A second function that international law performs is that it also provides a framework by which you can have reaction even to those violations. And so, you know, international law helps to coordinate behavior in response to things that are going on. And there, with regard to what's happening Russia, Ukraine, you see it performing that function. You see it, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, aiming to provide a framework for responding to violations, whether it's in relation to international crimes, whether it's about how it coordinates behavior in terms of the imposition of sanctions, you know, and, and all of that is happening within a framework of, of international law. Just picking up on Dapo's last point about um, international law providing a framework for reaction to violations um, and then hopefully, depending on the type of violation, leading to accountability or leading to compliance uh, and maybe even in some circumstances leading to changes in the law, changes in behaviour. Uh, I recently had a... Um, positive experience, uh, in contrast to what we, we've been seeing with Russia, Ukraine, of a state um, bringing itself into compliance with international law. Uh, so um, you're familiar with uh, the military commission proceedings at Guantanamo Bay um, in relation to people accused of involvement in uh, 9-11. Uh, and these proceedings have been fraught with uh, problems with alleged violations of international law, including in the early phase um, of uh, the use of torture against detainees uh, uh, by CIA in, in various black sites and also uh, in Guantanamo Bay. And uh, that was acknowledged and uh, prohibited, re-prohibited uh, by the United States quite a few years ago. But what the, the issue rose its head again in a recent case, the Al-Nashiri case, where um, the military commission judge said, we have this torture-tainted evidence uh, that the defendant allegedly gave while in, being held in a black site. And we know we can't use it in the trial proceedings because... That's international law. But there's nothing preventing us from using uh, these coerced confessions and statements in a pretrial phase of proceedings. So that decision was appealed by Al-Nashiri's defense team to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeal under U.S. law. But they asked me to, to come in on the international law side, and I um, put together a team of students at King's College London in our legal clinic, and we scoured all of international law, every treaty, every UN special rapporteur report, uh, decisions by regional um, courts and commissions, uh, decisions by treaty bodies, to make good the argument that the prohibition on using torture-tainted evidence is categorical. You can't split it into pre-trial and trial phases. Uh, it is an absolute prohibition. Even the language of the Torture Convention says in any phase of proceedings. 
Um, so we uh, presented that as an amicus brief, and even before it, it got to um, the point of decision by the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, the Biden administration uh, stepped back from what the military co commission judge had said and reconfirmed the US's commitment to the categorical prohibition on torture. And unusually, this happened in a period between October of our filing and I think January of the following year, so within a few months, uh, which was extremely satisfying um, for the, obviously for the defense team. Um, and uh, I told my students in, in my 20 years as an international lawyer, I have never seen such a quick and um, positive uh, result in terms of turning around compliance with an international law rule. So they've had this very positive experience early in their career. I hope they have many more, <laughs> but it's certainly not been my usual experience of how states respond to being told they're in violation of a rule. Yeah, I, th I think on that point, it does seem there was a kind of political element in the case. And uh, I was just wondering to what extent that political element might have influenced um, the legal reasoning you adopted and the arguments made to the court, um, or, or whether that was perhaps a bit less in the foreground? Hmm. So, uh, well, what, it wasn't the military judge <laughs> changing his mind. I'm sure he still believes what he said was true, and it didn't get to the point of a, another court telling him that uh, his decision was wrong. Uh, but it was this interesting interaction between the judiciary, a form of judiciary in the military commissions, and the executive. And you do see that a lot in international law. In terms of how it informed our strategy, uh, we were still very law-based, but what we wanted to do was just to show that there was an overwhelming consensus in international law that the U.S. was out of step with. Um, so maybe that had the, the political ramifications. And we, we also thought about it in terms of how we structured uh, our uh, submissions, because we knew, looking back at other amicus submissions that had been successful over the years, that uh, U.S. courts uh, have a lot of respect for the European Court of Human Rights. They may not understand the role of a U.N. special rapporteur as well. So in terms of um, structuring and putting forward uh, what we hoped would be the most compelling sources, we did take that into account. Uh, Dapu, you look like you want to add something. Yeah, and no, I just wanted to add something in terms of, um, you know, international law being practically relevant and, and interesting for, for students. And just to follow up on, on the point that Philippa was making, that, you know, sometimes we think about international law as it applies as between states. So I always talk about Russia, Ukraine, and we tend to think about international law just in that mode. But of course, international law applies more broadly than that. It's not just about the relations between states. It applies to how individuals are treated. It applies to the activities of companies and, and those interactions too, like Philippa's example about this person who is a defendant in proceedings in domestic courts. And so there's quite a wide range of issues actually that it covers. And in a lot of that mode, international law isn't really doing something very different from what domestic law is doing. It's talking about how the state treats individuals or how the state treats com companies or sometimes how individuals treat other individuals, right? So it's actually not that distinct from the normal ways in which we think about law.
Yeah, that's a good point and kind of links a bit um, to the next um, question I had in mind where um, it's very much about the relationship between states and individuals and specifically individual responsibility for um, what's going on in the Ukraine. So you, together with um, other international law experts such as Philippe Sands, the um, as well as the Ukrainian foreign minister and the former prime minister Gordon Brown, recently proposed a special tribunal to prosecute the crime of aggression on the basis that this fills in a gap in the international legal structure and complements the International Criminal Court. Could you perhaps expand on what exactly this gap is and how the tribunal would fill that? Sure. So this is thinking about um, accountability for individuals with respect to crimes committed in, in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, the International Criminal Court, of course, exists and has jurisdiction over international crimes. It has, uh, in principle, jurisdiction over four international crimes, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and the crime of aggression. And an unprecedented number of states actually have referred the Ukraine situation to the ICC. So the ICC is actually going to be investigating international crimes committed in Ukraine. However, the ICC can only investigate three out of those four, so genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity. The ICC cannot, in this case, deal with the crime of aggression against Ukraine because there is a different jurisdictional regime relating to the crime of aggression at the ICC. So for the ICC to be able to investigate, it would need, well, either Russia to be a party to the uh, statute of the ICC, or it would need for the UN Security Council to refer the crime of aggression, the situation regarding the crime of aggression to the ICC. And of course, neither of these things is either the case nor is likely to happen very soon. So the ICC is not going to be investigating the crime of aggression. So our proposal is to create a, a special tribunal to, to do this. And I suppose one might ask, you know, why? Why, why um, might we want to have prosecutions for the crime of aggression? And there I'd say a couple of, of things. So the first thing is actually um, th there's an important, if you like, expressive function that would be fulfilled by the prosecution of the crime of aggression. You know, the Nuremberg Tribunal talked about the crime of aggression being the supreme crime. And in the judgment at Nuremberg at the end of the Second World War, they had this phrase, they said it was the supreme crime because it contained within itself the accumulated evil of the whole. That's what they said. And the basic point being that all of the devastation and the destruction that we see comes from the waging of an aggressive war, right? So whether or not the war is even fought lawfully under the laws of war or not, the misery, the suffering, the now how many million people who've left their homes, nearly 10 million now, and all of the suffering that that brings, that's because of the waging of an aggressive war. And so having recognition and accountability for that is important. The second point um, second reason why the crime of aggression is important is that, you know, unlike, well, with the other crimes, you will need to join up the responsibility of senior leaders, if you're going to prosecute senior leaders, with specific acts that happen on the ground. And that's actually not always easy to do. It can be done, but it's not always easy. Whereas with the crime of aggression, you know, it, it's pretty clear. It, um, and it's not 
we think, going to be as difficult to establish the responsibility of senior leaders for the crime of aggression as it might be for the other crimes. Thank you, Dapo. Um, I think one question which relates to this is whether this special tribunal would be modelled, for instance, on the Nuremberg Tribunal. Um, so, you know, a few states kind of setting up this system or whether it might be better, as, for example, Una Hathaway suggested in a recent post on just security to form a court through an international agreement between the UN and Ukraine um, on the basis that, you know, this would have more legitimacy and represent the international community and its interests as a whole and also avoid um, perhaps setting a precedent where a few states create an international court to deliver a specific purpose they had in mind. For example, you know, Russia and Belarus might do the same. So, I mean, this is a good point. And I think all these options are on the table. You know, no decisions have been made as to which option to pursue. And I do agree with um, that suggestion that actually the best way of doing it would be to have an agreement between the UN and, and Ukraine. So this is the model that we had with the Special Court for Sierra Leone, for example, and a slightly different but similar sort of model with the, the extraordinary chambers in the court of Cambodia, where you have the UN and the state concerned entering into entering into an agreement. So I agree that that would be the best uh, the best option. Um, of course, the, the critical question is whether you can achieve that. Um, the other options would be to have an agreement between Ukraine and some other international organization, maybe not the UN, maybe a regional one, maybe the Council of Europe, maybe the EU. And then, you know, the, the possibility of having a tribunal created by states is legally available. And it, of course, it's true that it's best to have the broadest possible um, support from the international community. But, I mean, we should remember, the even the International Criminal Court is a court created by agreement between states. Not all the states in the world. You know, most... I don't know, I'd say half of the population of the world is not in a state that has agreed to the jurisdiction of the ICC. So just as a matter of law, I wouldn't take that option off the table, otherwise we wouldn't have it for the ICC. But I do agree that it's best to have as broad a support as possible. I wanted to um, take this opportunity to ask Dapo something that's been um, playing on my mind about uh, all of these various you know, very important considerations. Whichever model um, we have for prosecuting aggression, um, the prospects of actually getting President Putin for Mr. Lavrov and so on into custody are very remote while they're in power. So the best, unless you're thinking about trials in absentia, um, so the best prospect for actually getting them into custody and standing trial would be when there's been some kind of regime change in Russia. But if you have that regime change in Russia and therefore the possibility of prosecuting, then you would be able to use the ICC through Security Council referral. You wouldn't have the prospect of the Russian veto, assuming the regime changes to a um, more positive uh, pro-accountability regime. Uh, or Russia could even accept the jurisdiction of the ICC as Ukraine has under Article 12.3 with retrospective effect. Mm -hmm. So if we're really looking at the point in time of regime change of making these mechanisms work, then why 
do we need these new mechanisms? Because the ICC would be reactivated in those scenarios. So I think you're right that it is possible in the event of a regime change for Russia to either accept the jurisdiction of the ICC or to have a Security Council referral. But I do think that even with a regime change in Russia, the prospects of that, to me, seem extremely slim. That a Russian government of whatever stripe would actually be the one that would create the jurisdiction for an international tribunal to exercise to exercise, you know, jurisdiction over a former... Or at least not to block the veto, block through a veto. Yeah, but even that is requiring a huge amount from any future Russian government. I mean, that's that's an extremely heavy lift to say that Russia itself would be the one that would either create that jurisdiction or having the opportunity would not block it. You know, I can imagine that whatever happens in Russia, it seems to me extremely unlikely that you know the russian people would still then be willing to take that step if russia was actually going to do this in a future scenario it would probably be easier just to hand the person over to something that already exists so a good example would be take what happened with milosevic in in um in the former yugoslavia right so milosevic was kicked out of power And the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, existed, and it was actually just easier to put him on a plane (laughs) and just send him there, rather than having to, you know, either... So in the case of the ICC, there'd be questions under even under Russian law. Could the government do it on its own? Would it need, you know, the parliament to be able to do all these things? These are huge lifts for a future Russian, even a future Russian government in an optimistic mode that we think has kind of changed, um, I think it would be different if you already had a a tribunal that had existing jurisdiction and that was already existing, rather than compelling Russia to kind of be involved in creating this somehow. Um, Dapo, leading on from that, um, you've outlined how the special tribunal might be more effective than, say, you know, a referral to the ICC and other perhaps UN options, um, even if there is regime change in Russia. But wouldn't some of the obstacles we mentioned before um, similarly stand in the way? Um, For example, Kevin John Heller argued that the tribunal seems a bit of a reach as um, Russia... Um, would never extradite or provide meaningful access to suspects or evidence. And even though the tribunal might be a powerful message that the international community does not tolerate aggression, it would seem to get around the state immunity of certain officials, for instance, President Putin or the Foreign Minister Lavrov, and thus a, entail you know, a similar decision to waive um, immunity and establish jurisdiction as one would if one permitted an ICC referral. So just on the question of um, the chances and the prospects of success, you know, I think one has to be very clear-minded and not starry-eyed about this. You know, the chances of being able to prosecute people who have been responsible for the crime of aggression are slim. I think, you know, I would accept that, and I think most people involved in this endeavor would ex- would accept that. However... If you look at the previous circumstances where 
you know, similar efforts have been made to try to create international criminal jurisdiction, the chances have always been slim. So if you think about Nuremberg, you know, they started discussing this in 1942, the London Declaration. It probably seemed a little bit crazy in 1942 to be talking about the possibility of criminal jurisdiction over senior Nazi leader. It probably was a bit crazy. If you think about what was happening with the former Yugoslavia when these discussions were happening, to think in 1992 or 1993 that you would prosecute Milosevic, Karadzic, Mladic, that would have seemed crazy. And it probably was, you know, the chances were very slim. They all, of course, in the end, were prosecuted by the ICTY. So, yeah, the chances are slim. They're always slim. You never know what's going to happen. What you do know, though, is that if you don't start, the chances are zero. And so, you know, you start and you see where that, where that takes you. So can I just come in on the uh, immunity point, Deborah? Because I agree uh, this is very important uh, and, you know, potentially an area for some more creative thinking while acknowledging that this is, uh, uh, you know, these are rules of international law of very long standing. Uh, so immunity, of course, is a procedural bar to the exercise of jurisdiction. It doesn't bite on whether... Um, you know, the, the, the person was liable or not responsible, the state was responsible or not, that's a, that's a separate question for the merits. It's at the outset of the proceedings um, whether the court can even proceed to examine uh, the evidence. And uh, the prospects for um, prosecuting uh, ordinary soldiers, uh, lower-level level officials... Um, invokes the doctrine of functional immunity, which means that a person is immune for conduct that was in their official capacity, which is broadly interpreted. Um, it can be something that went against instructions, but they were acting in an official capacity. And the prospects for prosecution uh, of people in that category are quite good and promising in the way that the law has developed. So those individuals would have no immunity before the International Criminal Court. Uh, they would have no immunity before national courts where they are being prosecuted for acts that amount to international crimes, including war crimes and crimes against humanity. With regard to aggression in national courts, the position can be more finely balanced uh, because the uh, DAP has already explained the sort of different standing of aggression under the ICC's jurisdiction, uh, and also not many national courts have actually legislated uh, to criminalise aggression. Uh, but of course, as DAP has also pointed out, it is uh, a supreme crime. Um, so we may be seeing some legislative and judicial uh, developments in that regard. Uh, there would also be no immunity for those officials uh, who in principle enjoy functional immunity before a special tribunal or an ad hoc tribunal because they, they didn't have immunity before a national jurisdiction. Of course, if you pool the national jurisdictions, uh, it's the same situation. 
The real challenge is for the head of state, the head of government and the foreign minister while they're in office because they enjoy the more extensive personal immunity that covers not just acts in their official capacity but also acts in their private capacity uh, and uh, is essentially uh, absolute in most jurisdictions. So there would be uh, prospects for prosecuting uh, those high-level officials uh, before the ICC because state parties to the ICC have agreed under Article 27 um, that immunity is not a bar to the exercise of jurisdiction by the ICC. And that covers war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. Uh, as we've talked about, if there's regime change in Russia, then um, President Putin, uh, Prime Minister Mishustin and Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, would no longer be in this category of enjoying personal immunity. They'd only have functional immunity. So um, they would also not uh, be immune. Um, if there's regime change, we could also possibly, uh, despite the heavy lift, it would involve uh, have a Security Council referral that would enable uh, prosecution uh, for aggression. Um, however, those top three, they're sometimes called the Troika, uh, would be immune before national courts because that's what the weight of state practice and opinion juris currently holds. That's a holding in the ICJ arrest warrant case. Uh, that's also the current position of the ILC in its draft articles on the immunity of foreign officials from criminal jurisdiction. Um, I, my position is, I think, at as international law currently stands, they would also be immune before an ad hoc or special tribunal based on the pooling of national jurisdictions. Um, there is this question, and this is where it becomes more finely balanced, if you can have a tribunal that is somehow sufficiently international, that means it tips over from a kind of national, a special tribunal pooling national jurisdictions to an international court um, that under customary international law they don't enjoy personal immunity in, in front of. Um, that was the position of the ICC Appeals Chamber in the Al-Bashir case, where the main judgment held that even in the absence of a Security Council resolution under Chapter 7, uh, there was no immunity for a head of state, uh, as Al-Bashir was at the time. Um, before an international tribunal. Uh, there are widespread doubts, uh, I think Dapo shares them with me, about whether that was a correct statement of law. Uh, and there's always a possibility that a, another court or a differently composed appeals chamber of the ICC may take a different view. So, in sum, <laughs> lower-level officials, Russian soldiers, um, people acting in their official capacity while committing these international crimes are likely not to enjoy immunity from criminal proceedings. When we come to that top troika, it becomes more difficult. Uh, the ICC would have jurisdiction for war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. Um, but uh, in other... For, for aggression and for other... Uh, mechanisms, international or national, uh, immunity would be a significant bar. Thank you so much, Philippa. Um, so kind of deducing from that, would you think that um, it is correct to say that the UK could not, for example, prosecute or um, put it out an arrest warrant for 
um, state officials from Russia on that level that you outlined, so for example, President Putin or Foreign Minister Lavrov? Well, first of all, an arrest warrant does implicate immunities, even if it's not a prosecution as such. That's what the ICJ confirmed in the arrest warrant case, that it is a measure of constraint that can violate the international rule on immunities. In that case, it was a Belgian judge issuing an arrest warrant um, for the then Congolese foreign minister. Uh, so I think that it remains good law for... Um, finding any arrest warrant for Lavrov by the UK in violation of international law. But it really is restricted to those top three officials. Um, and there's even questions about whether those top three should always be treated the same way. There's some recent yeah. UK case law that tries to break that apart, uh, though in the context of civil proceedings. So, you know, we need to keep thinking about things, being creative, but also, you know, being realistic <laughs> in what is achievable. And there's other ways of making life difficult for the top three, uh, which the UK, I think, has been a real leader um, among uh, the states uh, in, in doing things like travel bans, asset freezes, um, you know, really practical barriers to um, these top officials being able to, to function as they would like. And that's even been extended to uh, their family members and associates. So on the topic of things that states can do to push Russia to end um, its war on the Ukraine, given that Russia has very likely committed various war crimes relevant to the international community as a whole, um, does that entail a potential duty um, to act or intervene? And if so, what exactly might such an obligation entail? For example, can one pin this down in concrete things such as a duty not to finance Russia's war machinery or not to purchase oil and gas from Russia, um, which is a very contentious issue, which the German government is currently dealing with, um, being accused of you know, having dealt very poorly with its uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline. No, thanks, Richard. So just before I answer that question specifically, there's one other thing that's been playing on my mind as we've been discussing this, which is that we talk about, we've been talking about Russia um, but actually everything that we say, or almost everything that we say, is also applicable to Belarus. Um, and because even though it is Russian troops that are engaged in the act of aggression on the territory of Ukraine, Belarus, by making its territory available for that violation of international law, is also, as a matter of international law, responsible for the aggression which kind of brings me back to the question of why aggression is important, because even though Belarusian forces may not have committed war crimes because they're not involved on the ground, their leaders have committed the crime of aggression. But coming back to your question about the response, so what the international community can do, and you posed the question in terms of what are states under an obligation to do, and I just want to separate out what can states do? What do they have a right to do? From what do they have an obligation to do? Now, what they have a right to do is perhaps easier to think of than what they have an obligation to do. So I'll start with what do they have a right to do? So in thinking about what they have a right to do, of course, they can take measures which don't ordinarily violate international law. In other words, unfriendly actions 
which are in response to a violation, but those unfriendly actions are not themselves a violation. So this is what international law is called retortions. So for example, if you impose a travel ban on people coming, you know, you have no obligation to allow them to come in the first place, though you're responding to a violation, this is itself not unlawful, it's a retortion. Then there is a set of measures where you are doing things which are potentially in violation of obligations that you have. And then you need to think about how to justify what you're doing. So whether we're talking about assets freezes, whether we're talking about, you know, you're interrupting ordinary trade, which you might have an obligation to allow under the WTO, you might be um, suspending, you know, um, what's it called, air transport, overflight. These are things where you ordinarily would have an obligation to allow these things, but you're doing things that would violate that. And there, there's a range of ways in which those things might be justified. In some cases, you might be able to find an exception under the relevant treaty regime. So with trade, for example, though you might have obligations under the WTO to allow kind of normal trade, the WTO also has this national security exception that you might be able to invoke. With air services, you might be able to suspend under the terms of the treaty, the relevant treaty, or you might actually be allowed to terminate the treaty under the terms of the treaty. Or you might then come to a difficult place where you have a, an obligation not to take the step. There's no exception. You can't or you don't want to suspend or terminate the treaty. Then the question is, what do you do? And there, international law allows for what we call countermeasures. So a state which is taking a step which is in breach of its own obligations in order to respond to a violation by somebody else. So the UK or whoever else taking a step which would otherwise be unlawful, but it's what we call a circumstance precluding wrongfulness or a defense because it's responding to an illegality. The problem here is that normally you can take countermeasures when you are the injured state. The breach of international law was committed to you. And in this case, Russia has invaded Ukraine. The UK is not, or whichever state other than Ukraine, is not the directly injured state. So then the question that arises is, can you take what we call third-party countermeasures? And one might say in this particular case, because this is a violation of obligations owed to the international community as a whole, what international law is called obligations ergo omnes, one might say, well, because it's that kind of an obligation, you can take countermeasures in response. The only difficulty is that when the International Law Commission considered this issue in its Articles on State Responsibility in 2001, it didn't come to a definitive conclusion on whether these third-party countermeasures were allowed. So what exactly we're seeing now, right, the UK and other countries, the US, Germany, lots of states, taking measures to respond to a violation that was not to them, assuming that what they're doing is a breach of international law and they can't find these other exceptions I spoke about, the ILC didn't exactly say, this is okay. <laughs> so the question is, have we moved to a stage now where under international law we say third-party countermeasures are allowed? I think so. I think, And I think this moment that we're in is one that actually provides us with a lot of practice that that's where we are. 
but it's what we need to think about. So that's do you have a right? Just very quickly on, okay, you can do it, but do you have to do it? Because I think that was your precise question. Do you actually have an obligation now to take steps? So again there, I think the starting point would be the ILC's articles on state responsibility. There the ILC dealt with serious breaches of peremptory norms of international law. So, you know, a very good thing for law students to be thinking about what's the difference between obligations ergo omnes, which I just spoke about, and norms of use cogens. They sound similar, they seem to be doing the same work, but actually they're, they're, they are similar, they overlap a lot, but they're not doing the same work. But the ILC spoke about certain consequences, additional consequences for serious breaches of peremptory norms. And that's the territory that we're in now. So the two main things it talked about, um, it talked about an obligation not to assist and recognize that's one category. But the one that's important for us now is it also talks about an obligation to cooperate, other states now, to cooperate to bring those serious breaches to an end. This is Article 41 of the ILC's Articles on State Responsibility. But what does that mean, obligations to cooperate? And the interesting thing is, just like with the debate on third-party countermeasures, the ILC talks about to take lawful measures to cooperate. So again, does this mean that you can do things that would otherwise be unlawful to cooperate to bring it to an end? The ILC seemed to be precluding that this was covered by the obligation. So again, it seems to be to take lawful measures, but it's still very vague what that means, an obligation to cooperate. Do you actually have to, for example, stop trading if you can, if it's lawful? Do you have to stop trading if you, if you can? I think it would raise the question of what is the nexus between your trading and the maintenance of the illegality? Right. So if, for example, that nexus was pretty strong and clear, then it might well be that you might say, yes, now you have an obligation to you know, cooperate to bring that to, to an end. Um, yeah, so that's the, that would be the main framework that one would be looking at. Yeah. Can I just um, add on that? There's mounting evidence of at least acts of genocide being committed mm -hmm. um, in Ukraine by Russian forces, uh, Bucha, Mariupol, um, the suburbs of, of Kyiv. And as Ukrainians gain, regain access to these places, they're just being confronted by the most horrific uh, evidence uh, in this regard. Um, and that brings in um, the obligation to prevent genocide. Uh, which is a kind of specialised um, uh, version, perhaps, of what Dapo has been explaining in terms of the obligations um, to, in regard to serious violations of peremptory norms, because genocide, the prohibition on genocide, is of course a peremptory norm. Um, and in the Bosnian genocide case, the ICJ uh, set out that there is an obligation to prevent genocide that has meaning and content. It actually held Serbia responsible for failing to prevent genocide in Srebrenica. And uh, while not pinning down the specific steps that a state would have to take, uh, the court said a, a couple of interesting things, such as um, 
you don't have an obligation to actually succeed in preventing the genocide. So, you know, a relatively small state uh, or even a powerful state will say, well, even if I took these measures, you know, I stopped trading or I terminated diplomatic relations or I imposed sanctions, it's not going to change the situation. Um, and the court said that that's not an excuse because it's the, an obligation of conduct. And the idea is that if all states that were able to do something to help prevent the genocide took the action, then it might be that collective effort uh, that actually leads to um, change. But the other thing that the, the court said, uh, which chimes with what uh, Dapp has been explaining in the context of the ILC articles, is the court said that action taken um, under the obligation to prevent genocide must comply with obligations under international law. So once again, um, where a state in this situation wanting to help has to also think about whether this will be in compliance with their whole network of other international legal obligations. Um, on that point, um, I'm just wondering if one were able to identify certain applicable use Kogan's norms, so norms that are peremptory and cannot be restricted or limited by international law, so for example by treaty law, um, would one be able to circumvent these issues potentially? You mean that the use Kogan's norm would trump the um, other obligations? Possibly, but that hasn't been <laughs> set out as such by either the ILC or yeah. um, the ICJ, but there are certainly arguments along those lines that something that could have been unlawful is rendered lawful yeah. in these circumstances. Um, but we are in a little bit in uncharted uh, territory. So the thing that makes that argument a bit tricky, the sort of use Kogan's argument creating a hierarchy, is that though the obligation not to commit genocide is undoubtedly a use Kogan's norm, here we're talking about the obligation of other states to take action to prevent genocide. Mm. And so you'd have to show that that obligation that one is a use Kogan's norm, which then trumps their obligations to do the other things that would otherwise be in violation. And that's um, where I think one might run into some difficulty. Thanks, Dapo. Um, thinking about other mechanisms one could use to um, collectively push Russia to end the Ukraine war, there's been a lot of discussion around the Security Council and its efficiency, the use of veto powers, and uh, I was just wondering whether there's any prospect of reform at the moment, given that the Ukraine invited states to consider uh, structural change to avoid Russia's veto use. Um, for example, a week ago, I think, that the US co-sponsored a UN General Assembly resolution on the Security Council veto, um, proposing that a General Assembly meeting is automatically convened every single time a veto is cast in the Security Council. W would that perhaps, um, you know, indicate a real kind of push for reform and how viable might that be? So the veto power rests in five um, permanent members of the Security Council, and that was you know, a key part of the negotiations in San Francisco. It's a key part of the design of the Charter. And, you know, the UK is a veto holder uh, as well as um, Russia, which has been exercising it in relation to blocking any action in relation uh, to the war in Ukraine. It would be very, very difficult <laughs> to 
uh, amend the charter to uh, modify, remove, um, condition the veto in this way. Uh, under the UN Charter, um, amendments to the Charter must be adopted by two-thirds of the members of the General Assembly. That's possible. Ratified by two-thirds of all UN members. More difficult, imagining all those domestic processes um, taking place in two-thirds of 193 member states. But finally, this must include all permanent members of the Security Council. And it is inconceivable that Russia and I think China would um, amend the charter in this way. And depending on how I was about, and depending on how the amendment is phrased, maybe all five would uh, be very reluctant to um, to take any steps in that direction. So we are a charter amendment is out of the question. Um, a couple of other ideas. Uh, under Chapter 6 of the Charter, which is not co coercive action, but is action to um, uh, facilitate the peaceful settlement of disputes, Article 27 provides that um, veto-holding members of the Security Council who are involved in the dispute or conflict being discussed must abstain from the voting on Chapter 6. This has not been honoured <laughs> um, traditionally, but it is... Uh, a, a, a provision of the Charter that already exists. So it, if there was um, action, you know, further action, even potentially more concrete action that could be taken under Chapter 6, Article 27 could be given real meaning and Russia should be um, obliged to abstain uh, from using the veto to block that action. Of course, that, that won't help with Chapter 7. Another possibility uh, that is not being pursued but that's been discussed on the EGIL talk blog is using the credentials process um, to suspend Russia from the General Assembly. Um, query, this is Rebecca Barber writing about this, query whether that um, credentials process could also be used in the Security Council, um, but this is not something that's currently being pursued. Uh, but then one thing that is being pursued is what you, you mentioned, this um, Proposal that whenever the Security Council veto is exercised, that uh, automatically a General Assembly meeting will be convened. Uh, I think that uh, performs potentially an important diplomatic role, an expressive function um, that we've discussed uh, in another context. But I don't see how it actually creates any change uh, in terms of the deadlock that we see in the Security Council when a permanent member uh, has skin in the game. Because uh, the General Assembly can only make recommendations. Um, if the purpose is to understand why that state used a veto, I, I, I saw in the proposal that they would have to explain why they used the veto, there's already explanations of vote in the Security Council. Uh, so while it you know, does engage the General Assembly more in looking at the use of the veto power, it's not something that they can actually override or change. Yeah. So I guess we're pretty much stuck with uh, <laughs> <laughs> that. Um, and that's by design. Yeah. And in some situations, it can be a positive. The, the original, uh, and Davika Hovel's written about this on the blog as well, the original idea 
was that in you know it was a way to sort of freeze things in a diplomatic process um, when you have these great powers, as, as some of them were at the time, um, uh, in, in you know potentially moving towards conflict. Uh, so as frustrating uh, as it is, we we need to remember that it actually came from uh, an intention to uh, to maintain the peace. It's clearly not what's happening in this scenario. Would there perhaps be scope for a more drastic um, solution which um, essentially sees states not utilising the Security Council and its mechanisms but set up an alternative body which performs broadly the same functions? <laughs> well, you would still need to amend the Charter to create the alternative body. Yeah. Um, but, but another... Uh, option actually that has been floated not in the context of this uh, conflict but in previous conflicts was actually proposed by France which was um, to s a proposal by France that when there's a chapter 7 vote um, that involves international crimes, crimes against humanity war crimes, genocide I assume aggression, I don't know if that was in the original French proposal um, that the veto shouldn't be on the table. Yeah. So in an international crime chapter 7 scenario the the um, permanent five members can vote in favour, vote against, they can abstain, but they can't exercise their veto. So considering that um, the Security Council does not seem like the best measure to use um, in, this, in this situation, I just wanted to go to um, your role in the newly created Ukraine Task Force, which aims to secure justice for Ukrainian civilians. How... Does this kind of complement, um, for example, the Security Council, perhaps inadequacies that we just discussed, or, or the tribunal that uh, DAPO is a proposer of? Thank you. Um, so I, I hope it's complementary, and that's certainly the intention. Um, so this actually arose in response to a request from the Ukrainian Prosecutor General for legal assistance. Uh, and... The task force, uh, which is composed of various uh, international lawyers um, who uh, have experience of um, some key national jurisdictions as well as international uh, jurisdictions, um, as well as uh, uh, three law firms, um, Covington and Burling Withers and Cigna, who are giving their services pro bono uh, as well, um, is really about providing strategic guidance uh, on a legal advisory level. Uh, so it's much broader than some of these other mechanisms that we've been speaking about. And it's also much more advisory in nature. So we have three main projects at the moment, um, uh, which the Prosecutor General has confirmed would be uh, of utility to um, her office. Uh, so we are assessing current and future proposals for investigations and accountability, including through the UN and regional organisations. Um, there's, there's one of the positive silver linings of uh, this horrible situation is the outpouring of support for Ukraine, which is overwhelming in its own sense. There are 20 different websites collecting evidence. Um, so we're trying to, to help just advise on um, prioritizing, streamlining, and you know, just just giving that more high level advice. 
Uh, second, we're giving uh, advice in relation to potential civil or criminal cases, uh, including under universal jurisdiction laws. I think at last count, 14 national jurisdictions have opened investigations into uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Um, and uh, we're also looking at the possibility of, you know, not just prosecutions and convictions, but uh, hopefully reparations uh, in these jurisdictions. And then finally, um, obviously the ICC prosecutor has opened an investigation very early on into uh, the invasion, and uh, we are advising uh, the prosecutor general on how to enhance um, and maximise that relationship uh, with the ICC uh, in terms of you know, understanding the parameters, how the ICC works, but also facilitating information and evidence sharing. And in that regard, um, we're very fortunate that Microsoft has come on as a technology partner um, because the volume of material uh, is, is massive uh, and we're hoping that using their um, skills will help us secure, analyse and share that evidence with the ICC. Thank you so much, Philippa. Um, it's really encouraging to hear the level of support that's been outgoing towards Ukraine. And I think we also feel as in the UK where Prime Minister Boris Johnson has repeatedly um, expressed his support for Ukraine and also stressed the significance of the international norms at play. But I think in other contexts, for example, in relation to the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol or the Brexit negotiations in general, we see a bit more scepticism towards um, the duty to comply with international law. And there's also been some discussion around the ministerial code, which has been changed, I think, a few years ago, but still somewhat recently, and dropped the requirement for ministers to comply with international law. Um, Dapo, how would you kind of describe the current relationship of the UK government with international law in light of these developments and somewhat conflicting, um, you know, viewpoints? So in thinking about, you know, the UK's, um, shall we say, relationship to international law, I think it's important to sort of go beneath the state. You know, we often think of states as monolithic entities, which, of course, they're not. You know, so we speak about the UK, we speak about Russia, we speak about the US. But, of course, within these states, there are different entities, actually, that have different views. So, for example, in the UK, we can talk about the view of the government, if you like, the executive branch, the view of the legislative branch, parliament, and the views of the courts. And I, and I know we'll come on to the courts in, in a moment. But for now, just speaking specifically about, the, if you like, the political branches of the government, so the executive and the and parliament, right? You know, the, the approach towards international law goes in, it, it goes in waves. It's an up and, uh, you know, it's up and down and it's different areas of international law as well. So sometimes there's a lot of bashing of the European Court of Human Rights and they say we want to pull out of the European Convention and then at other times there'd be other bits of international law. If, you, if one looks historically, though, at how, you know, international law has been viewed by the political processes, I actually wouldn't say that at this point we're kind of like in a historic low. I actually think on some issues we're actually in some ways at a historic high. So take, for example 
the views relating to the use of force and the relevance of international law to considering whether or not the UK should use force. So one of the spoke about silver linings. One of the silver linings of the Iraq War of now nearly twenty years ago is that there's a lot more attention that's paid now by the political branches, Parliament, the executive, to international law when we're thinking about the use of force. So it would have been unimaginable even, say, 30 years ago to think that when there are discussions around the use of force in Parliament and in government, that one of the key questions that people will be asking is, is this lawful under international law? And has the Attorney General written an opinion that says this is lawful? But that's where we are now, where it's acknowledged that there's a convention that before you commit forces, you know, there will be this kind of um, th- this discussion. You'd go to Parliament and then Parliament discusses this. Okay. But of course, in other things, we've seen a low. So you spoke about Northern Ireland and the the so-called specific and limited breach of the <laughs> of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which the government was proposing um, over a year ago now, I think it was. So, you know, the thing is, with regard to the ministerial code, so the ministerial code is, is a document that is issued by the prime minister and it sets out the obligations of ministers in their functions. The very first thing, actually, that the ministerial code talks about is the obligation of ministers to comply with the law. And it used to say, the wording used to be, that ministers have a duty to comply with the law, including international law. And so that put front and center the idea that, you know, the government complying with international law was important. Then, um, when was it? It's now more than a couple of years ago. The wording was changed, and it simply said it was changed to that ministers have a duty to comply with the law, and the specific reference to international law was removed. That created a little bit of of a backlash, but the government accepted that that change in wording did not actually change the substance of the obligation. The government accepted that the duty to comply with the law continued to include a duty to comply with international law. And they said this more generally, and they also said this actually in a case in court as as well. Um, so the ministerial code still actually contains an obligation upon ministers to comply with the law. Of course, parliament could choose if it wanted to, to break international law, and this was what was put before Parliament with regard to the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol when this specific and limited breach was being proposed. So as a matter of UK law, Parliament could actually decide we are going to pass legislation, the effect of which would be now to breach international law. The question is whether ministers should put that to Parliament. You know, Should ministers actually consciously put to Parliament a proposal which they know would be in breach of, of international law. And that was what was at issue then with regard to Northern Ireland. I guess the question that then raises is that if, as the government contends, um, this change didn't actually result in any substantive changes, whether a minister proposing a bill which breaches international law obligations 
should or can actually make such a proposal um, without breaching the ministerial code? Yeah, and I think that's a really good question because, you know, ministers have undertaken this obligation not to violate international law. And I can sort of see the argument that it's actually not good enough to say, well, parliament can choose to breach it. But if you're the one that is proposing for parliament to breach it, then you're in breach of your own current obligations not to, you know, not to breach um not to breach international law. I mean, to put the other side, you know, the argument would be, you know, this is a democracy and parliament gets to choose and gets to decide. Um, but nonetheless, you would be breaching your obligations by asking parliament to, to, breach, to breach international law. Yeah, I think that's definitely something to keep in mind um, going forward with the Northern Ireland Protocol in specific. Um, but moving on perhaps from the political process and the view of international law there, what does the attitude of the UK towards the ICJ, so the International Court of Justice and its judgments, actually look like? Um, is that similar? Is that um, different in a meaningful way? So uh, I had the opportunity um uh, as part of a sort of a special issue of a journal that looked at national encounters with the ICJ to to go back in time and, and trace the UK's interaction uh, with the ICJ and even the PCIJ before that uh, over the last hundred years to, to the present day. And it is a story um, that we see similarities uh, with what Dapper has said about uh, the, the reaction in, in the political sphere because it's a story of vacillation. <laughs> um, the UK was a uh, very important and early and strong supporter of uh, the Permanent Court of International Justice and, and then the ICJ after the Second World War. It has been an active contributor to the court uh, in terms of uh, nominating judges who have gone on um, to have a very important influence on the court, um, just in you know relatively recent years, President Rosalind Higgins and um, President uh, Robbie Jennings, uh, as well as other uh, uh, British judges who have served uh, with great distinction on the court. Um, but even more behind the scenes, you see uh, the UK being um, represented among the staff of the court, uh, and certainly you know you can have cases, uh, let's say. Um, between two African states at the court and there will be British counsel on either side. The, the English bar um, has a, a, an excellent reputation um, before the ICJ and therefore the confidence of states parties who are using the courts. So the UK's influence and support and involvement in the court is, is multifaceted and long-standing. Um, but it's the vacillation comes from when the UK itself is before the court, either in a contentious proceeding um, or in advisory proceedings. Um, and it is interesting to see a combination of both engagement with the court um, and resistance to the court. Uh, and you asked about uh, recent experience, Richard, and I think um, the the most recent one is the, the advisory opinion on the legal consequences of the separation of the Chagos Archipelago from Mauritius in 1965. Um, and we saw the UK uh, displaying engagement in that it uh, fully engaged in the written 
uh, pleadings. It presented um, oral submissions before the court disclosure. I, it was one of the counsel for the UK um, in those advisory proceedings. But we saw resistance um, in the UK arguing that the court should exercise its discretion not to provide an advisory opinion, that the dispute was bilateral in nature and uh, had been already resolved by an arbitral tribunal in interstate proceedings uh, under UNCLOS, as, as well as domestic proceedings and political settlements and undertakings by um, the UK government. Um, uh, we've also seen uh, that since the advisory opinion was issued and followed up by a General Assembly resolution recommending, because that's all the General Assembly can do in this context, that uh, the UK withdraw from um, the Chagos Archipelago or the British Indian Ocean Territory, depending <laughs> whose perspective you're seeing it from, um, within a period of six months. That period has been and gone. And uh, the UK has, um, you know, maintain the consistent position that these are you know, technical advisory proceedings only and that um, it, it had the correct position before the court. But, you know, of course, from Mauritius and its supporters, that's seen very much as resistance to um, the ICJ. So, you know, a complex relationship, but if we step back, you know, and, and we take the century-long view, I would say... The UK is the biggest, if not one of the biggest, um, supporters of the court and in the notion of um, the settlement of disputes peacefully in accordance with international law. So, you know, when the next case comes around, it, it's absolutely open again for the UK to be um, fully supportive and fully engaged. Can, can I just make one point here, which is about this vacillation that yeah. Philippa has been talking about and, and maybe to tie it a little bit to what we were saying in relation to to Russia, Ukraine. You know, so one of the things that I think has been, I think frankly, damaging to the UK over the last couple of years is this idea of you know not being willing either to abide by or at least suggesting that it might not abide by its international commitments with regard to the specific and limited breach that we spoke about, and also with regard to, to Chagos, which which Philippa has just been talking about, and also disclosure, I was also counsel in, in that case, sort of on the. And we are speaking exactly, <laughs> and we're speaking in our in our personal capacities as well. Um, but you know, the fact that on these occasions. The UK has either suggested not complying with a treaty obligation or hasn't accepted a decision of an international court undermines the sort of legitimacy when the UK then calls on other states to abide by international law. And states notice this. And when we now take it back to what we're, we've been discussing in the main in relation to Russia-Ukraine, I think it's important to say that though we are seeing... Um, you know, a huge moment where we've got a, a significant and serious breach by a big player on the international stage, there are many people who say, yes, but this is not the only case where we've seen breaches of international law. There are people who say, is this just, you know, we've spoken about the outpouring of support by individuals and also by states. There are people who say, but isn't this selective application of international law? And it's important for us to think about those things. I mean, my own personal view is that 
whether or not there is or there isn't selective application of international law, I wouldn't myself say because others haven't gotten justice, then victims in this case should be denied justice. I wouldn't say that. I would say, well, if we're going to support victims now, we should always support victims. But the point that I'm just trying to make to bring it back to the UK, and this isn't just about the UK, this is just more generally about the system, that that commitment actually to observing the rules when those rules are applied against you is actually really important when it comes to you then trying to invoke those same rules against others. You know, so we saw, for example, in the General Assembly, huge number of states voting for the first resolution condemning Russia. And then that support has started to decline, in part for the reasons that we're giving. So this is one of those reasons why it's actually important to always actually try and maintain that support, because you may need to invoke those rules some other time, and people will remember if you yourself haven't uh, always abided by them. So it's essentially in the interests of states to carefully consider um, whether or not to breach or perhaps partially breach um, international law, given you know could bite them back in in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. Because when you need to invoke those same rules, then you know you need to be able to show <laughs> that these rules matter, and your case is undermined when you haven't always been fully compliant, let's put it that way. Yeah, I think this kind of leads us to the start of the podcast, you know, the general relevance of international law. I think on that note, um, we have come to the end of the podcast. And um, thank you so much for joining us today and highlighting some of the complexities of international law's application, um, both related to the Russia-Ukraine war and um, more generally, and also for highlighting the UK's um, relationship with international law, be it within the political process or with regards to the International Court of Justice. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.